continuing uh, talking about Romans uh, chapter 9 to 11. And uh, Paul, of course, is here working out the reason for uh, the ethnic Judaism, the purposes of the law, and how that then relates to faith. So Christ is the end of the law, he's going to say, uh, and faith then brings this about. And so what I want to talk about today is why this construct and how exactly the law is functioning. If you look at Romans 10, 4, and I'll be looking at the, I'll reference here passages throughout chapter 10. But Christ, he says in verse 4, is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So clearly the markers of the law were applied to ethnic Israel, and that ethnic Israel did not have righteousness But now there is access, a universal access for all, in and through faith. So the question here is not about abolishing the law, but rather the way in which the law leads to Christ. So that's sort of the first part here, uh, that the law does have its purpose. And I believe that what Paul is talking about, what I talked about last week, you know, that um, at the end of this, Paul is going to say, all Israel will be saved. Well, who's Israel? Israel is the church. The true Israel is the church. And so he's talking about the sense in which right now, the purposes of Israel, contemporaneous with the Jews alive at that time, were being fulfilled so that Israel is in the process of entering into, of transitioning into uh, the reality of what Israel had always meant to be, and that was the church. And so the law continues in this period, and I think even today we could say, the law continues to lead to Christ. That's the picture, right, in Romans 7, that there is this ongoing process. In 10.3 of this chapter... Paul says, I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. Due to sin, the Jews attempted to establish their own righteousness through the law, and they failed to combine it with faith. And so the the idea is that even prior to the law, there was the foundation of faith, and we'll talk about that, in the covenant with Abraham. So freedom from sin is necessarily, this is Heinrich Schleier, is necessarily freedom from man's physical desire for life, for himself. And this desire is unleashed by the law. I would say it's unleashed by the law and it's identified by the law. That is, that what is the controlling factor in people's lives? It's their desire. What is their desire about? In some way, it's their desire for life, for them you know, to establish life on the basis of themselves. That's true of everybody, but the law reveals that. The law shows that in the case of Israel, that they would establish a righteousness, and righteousness just means 
they had make their you know their their life on the ba- they'd make their lives right on their own power. And Paul himself is an example of this. Think of Paul's zeal as a Pharisee. The zeal, in fact, not just of Paul the Pharisee, but the leading Jews whose zeal for the law is precisely the reason that they killed Jesus. Uh, It's the zeal that when Jesus enters into the temple, he's going to talk about, you know, the, the zeal about the temple is the very thing that they're going to kill him for. But the problem is they don't recognize Jesus is true temple. The thing they do not know is how Christ is the goal or end of the law. Christ is the end of Judaism. And so we need to make clear how that is case. And, and here with the end, we need to think goal, purpose. Uh, they seek to establish Jewishness and law as an end in itself. There can therefore be no covenant future for those Israelites who refuse to abandon their own ethnic identity, their ethnic status, as the basis for covenant membership. And remember, this is a covenant membership is the way that you're saved. Have you entered into a covenant relationship? And Christ is the end of that road. Christ is the means of entering into covenant purposes. And that was always the way that God intended to deal with sin, to make us right. Uh, And that's the picture then in 10.4, that Christ is the end of the law. That righteousness might come. He's already demonstrated that in chapter 4 with Abraham. But the Jews have misread, they've misfocused the purposes of the law. They've misunderstood the source of righteousness. Uh, Rather than focusing on the promise fulfilled in Christ, or even the promise as it's given to Abraham... Uh, in some way, they've missed the fact that Abraham was righteous because he believed and so was counted righteous prior to the law. Paul has had to remind them of that. And to imagine that the law itself is the promised life and righteousness, that completely misses the point of the faith. Abraham's, what is the nature of faith? How, you know, what is the prototypical faith? Paul says it's resurrection faith. That is that Abraham's life is one in which he's as good as dead and his faith is that God can give him life even in that situation. He he trusted God would give him life through a son. That son, of course, is pointing to the seed that Paul will argue is Christ. So Paul is seeking to answer the question of why God needed to reveal his saving righteousness in Christ and why people can only experience it by faith. There's a clear argument here if we can get it. And the answer is in Paul's contention. First of all, he said in chapter 3, all are under sin. We're all helpless captives to the deadly rule of sin. That's our problem. And then Paul eliminates he eliminates in you know everybody counts there's no 
one excluded, whether you're Jew or Gentile. And then remember in chapter 3, he has a series of quotes in which he pictures some apply to the Jews, some apply to everybody. Uh, But in that series of quotes from the Old Testament, Paul weaves together a picture of sin in which the mouth, the throat, the tongue, the organs of speech uh, have taken up a lie. We've been deceived and we ourselves are deceivers. Remember our picture of Jacob as the deceitful one, the deceiver. And Nathaniel is then the Israelite without deceit. So this deceit has infected everyone. It functions as, uh, and the picture is that it's like a sarcophagus. It's like a tomb in Paul's description in which people are entrapped. They're poisoned or they're poisoning you know, leading to bloodshed and violence. And that then is the picture of the human condition outside of Christ. The lie of sin deals in death. It deals in death with the one who is the sinner, and it deals in death in the sense of his relationships. It's a violent relationship. So that even those, Paul says, who have been entrusted with the oracles of God, have in fact turned to the deceit of sin. But the law has its purpose, which Paul has demonstrated. In 3.20 he says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law this all should become clear to us. This is not a bragging right, you know, he says to the Jews, but this is a cause for silent humility. And so what he's doing in chapter 3, I think he's completing in chapter 10, when he talks about this word that is near you, in your heart and in your mouth. We could talk about chapter 3, there's empty speech, there's lies, there's deception, and chapter 10 is full speech. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed. So he says, your words are empty, you need to shut up. You need to stop entrusting yourself to your own words. All have fallen short. Um, So their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Um, But the picture there of this lying word, this journey into death, he's already talked about it in chapter 4, this death-dealing lie is... Undone, beginning with the word of promise given to Abraham. Uh, That there is a reorientation of faith. And what is faith? Faith is a turn from the empty human words to the fullness of the promise that is given uh, to Abraham, fulfilled through Christ. You know, you can, we've compared this to the language of Babel. That's chapter 11. There's the empty speech in which people trust in human language. And then chapter 12, in which God gives a promise that is the counter to Babel. Um, so, with the father of the Jews, we have the father of faith. And Paul is going to define faith then as. God's promise in the face of death as resurrection faith or we might call it death acceptance 
as opposed to death resistance. The lie of sin is the death resistance of the Babylonians. The uh, truth of faith is the death acceptance that we see in the journey of Abraham. Um, so that's the sense. The Jews have assent, uh, done the Babylonian sin, but that's the, always the sin. They've attempted to establish their own righteousness through the law, and they failed to combine it with faith. Um, so Paul's argument throughout Romans, the law was never an end in itself, and they've taken it as an end in itself. Um, law alone, apart from faith, is void, Paul says in 4.14. It nullifies the faith. So let, think here, if I had a chalkboard, we could put up a chart, and we could put, we could picture two ways of seeing the law. We can see the law in one way as a kind of contract, a kind of end in itself. And then we can see on the other side, well, actually the law was built upon the idea of covenant. And I believe that in many forms of Christianity, uh, it's the same mistake that they picture belief as a one-off. You know, in a contract, you just sign the line. No ethics, no healing, you just sign up with the contract. But in a covenant, there is belief and it's tied to, think of the journey of Abraham, think of the life course of Jesus. The covenant is a covenant of faithfulness in which ethics and healing and trust uh, and intellectual assent are all included. A contract is just a legal deal. I'm afraid that much of Christianity is just pictured as a one-off signing up, a legal deal. But a covenant, the covenant of Abraham fulfilled in Christ is a commitment. A contract is all about acquiring something. You know, you sign the contract, you get something. A covenant is really not about getting something. It's oriented to relationship. It's commitment like a marriage commitment in which you're keeping the covenant faithfulness and that's the nature of it. A contract is all about protecting self-interest and that's the problem of the Jews. That's why Christ is going to die. Don't you know that one man must die that we could protect the self-interest of the state? That's I mistranslated or retranslated. Uh, a covenant is all about not protecting self-interest, but protecting a relationship. A covenant or, or a contract is all about a kind of mental assent, a belief that is very much disconnected uh, from relationship. I don't know why here. I, I, the illustration I always think of, I think the, the worst case kind of contractual Christianity, and I don't think it's only this, is Calvinism. Well, think of Calvin's, how does Calvin enforce his understanding of the contractual relationship? Well, Michael Servetus gets burned at the stake along with many others by Calvin because they do not agree to this kind of contractual understanding. 
In other words, I think as we make the mistake of the Pharisees and we shift back to a legalistic, contractual, you know, propitiation type understanding of who God is, that in fact we become like the Pharisees. We would burn the other at the stake. We would put Jesus on the cross. We've confused, you know, the very nature that the belief is a holistic belief. It's entering into a relationship, not only with God, but with other people. A contract is predicated on, I don't trust you. And I want you to sign this and say you will do this. A covenant is based upon, it's predicated on a relationship. Uh, A contract is one moment in time. Just sign up here. Just say, I accept Jesus into my heart. Uh, A covenant is inclusive of the past. I think this is the picture of not just baptism, but it's the picture of the Christian life. That it's a participation in the death of Christ. It's a participation in the present tense resurrection of Christ pointing to the future resurrection. That is that we are then uh, in some way binders of past, present, and future in and through Christ. So the shift from contract to an understanding of a contractual relationship to a true covenantal relationship I think gets at the shift in thinking that Paul is arguing about here, well, throughout Romans, but especially in 9 to 11. He's saying, you Jews are thinking of this in terms of contract, and you need to think of it in terms of covenant. But it's even deeper than that, because I think that, in fact, what Abraham himself has experienced is linked organically with the inherent you know, problem of sin, picture the Babylonians here, and the inherent demands of faith. That sin has put us into bondage to the law. Uh, it's put us in bondage uh, to the law of sin and death. And there is an exact equation in the text between Abraham's belief, then, and a passage from that death dealing, you know, law of sin and death to his death acceptance and passage then out of one law into another. So we can say that faith, if we understand it properly, in its death acceptance, addresses the problem of sin at its deepest level. Now the way that Paul is going to picture this in Romans 10 uh, is precisely in and through uh, the picture of the shame that uh, has come and then the passage beyond shame. He's going to say that uh, shame is, you know, whoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. He says this two different times. He says it in 9.33. He says it here in chapter 10. Uh, at the end of the passage, the word is near you in your mouth, that it is in your heart, uh, that uh, in, in verse 11, as scripture says, 
Anyone who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. This is one of Paul's favorite passages. Or one of it, and actually what he's doing in chapter 9 and chapter 10, he's fusing two ideas, two pictures of messianic passages that talk about Christ in terms of a stone that the builders rejected and the cornerstone of the church. Behold, I lay a stone in Zion. Uh, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will never be disappointed, will never be put to shame. He's quoting Isaiah 28. If you remember Isaiah 28, is a, it is a picture of those who are kind of the counter-Abraham. They're still the Jews, but they've entrusted themselves to a covenant with death. Uh, chapter 8 pictures precisely what they're doing. They're going out into the graveyards and they're worshiping the dead. It's a kind of ancestor worship and they have made death itself. They've reified death and when God comes upon the scene they say, get away from us God. We've got something more holy and absolute than you are. They've done what many world religions do in Japan. You can see this every summer in Obon. When they go out to the graveyards and they feed the gods, the ancestors. Uh, and that is one of the most sacred occasions of the year. And so it, it is, I think, the religion of the Egyptians. It's the religion of the... Uh, I think it's just pagan religion that we get in uh, ancestor worship... And what both Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28 is picturing, you've entered into a covenant, but it's not the covenant with God, it's a covenant with the grave. You have made uh, a promise, or you've entered into a promise that is a deception. Think here of chapter 3, the lie. The lie is pictured as a huge sarcophagus, a huge tomb. Well, that's right out of Isaiah. That you've entered into this covenant with grave and this covenant is going to be annulled. And the picture is that this, you know, the, uh, the grave is going to be flooded. You, know, you, you say that this scourge of death will come and it will not touch you. Oh no, it's going to sweep through and it's going to get you all. Well then that's obvious. That you're going to be undone. You're going to be put to shame. And of course, shame and death are always linked in Scripture. Shame is what it feels like to die. That's not strong enough. Shame is the experience of death in the midst of life. But Paul says here, and he's quoting Isaiah 28, You shall not be ashamed. You shall not be put to shame. Um, Paul uses it in, in, in Romans 5. Hope does not put to shame. What's the counter to shame? It's hope. What's the counter to the experience you know, of the key or the root negative emotion? Uh, have you ever said, I could just die of shame? Uh, well, you could. Or maybe you are. Um, the picture throughout Scripture in the, uh, you know, the Psalms is that shame is cured, made... It's cured through righteousness. 
That is, you were made right. What's wrong with you? Well, shame is a holistic picture of what's wrong with you. What's the cure? Righteousness. You're made right. And this is precisely the way that Paul begins the book of Romans. I'm not ashamed. I will not be put to shame. Because the righteousness of God has been revealed in Christ Jesus. Um, we did this a little bit on Friday. You know, you, to understand the degree to which shame is definitive of our problem. First of all, we've got to get the idea that as human beings created in the image of God, the way that image is constituted in us is in a relationship, right? Relationship with God, relationship with other people. That's not just something about us. That is us. That is definitive of who we are. And so the broken relationship with God results in the shame of Genesis chapter 3. Uh, that, that is the, the created image there is the idea that they see themselves as children of God and when they no longer see themselves as children of God and they see themselves as their own fathers, their own creators, uh, that this then gives it over to the hiding you know, you could, we could speculate here, and on a Sunday morning, I probably don't want to speculate too much, but the particular places that they cover up, their genderedness, speaks of procreation, which is dependent upon a creator. It speaks of our mortality, of our, you know, just the fact that I'm not complete in myself, that everything about me points to being completed in another our genderedness is a sign of our incompleteness in ourselves right that is ultimately fulfilled through the marriage supper of the lamb in which the bride of Christ then you know is fulfilled becomes complete uh, in the marriage to the groom so the gendered image it is fulfilled in Christ in the church. So shame occurs in Genesis. It's the failure of a relationship. It's a failure of a relationship with God, and it results in a failed relationship with others. And it's a holistic experience. Is it in your head? Do you need Jesus to just deal something, uh, a problem that's, you know, moral or simply one part? No, the, the picture of shame is it's holistic. I just could run and hide. I could go crawl in a hole. You know, that kind of desperate need pictures what Christ is uh, bringing about in a new relationship. So sin produces shame. Sin produces, it, and I think shame then, in both Isaiah, in the Psalms, in the wisdom literature, the picture is that shame is the living death of sin and the culmination of shame is death it is the root or primal negative emotion I've said this before and I'm not in any way encouraging that we begin to practice nude baptism here at Liberty Christian Church but that was the early way they did it right because in Genesis it says they were naked but not ashamed and so the early church took that quite literally 
and said, oh, okay, as long as we're outside of Christ and we're trying to clothe ourselves, we're still subject to shame. But when we are clothed in Christ in Christian baptism, we're naked but not ashamed. Well, actually, the white robes of righteousness are the cure. So, this is, you know, the the beginning of Romans. It's not, Paul's not saying, you know, I'm not really that embarrassed about the gospel. Uh, No, it's, that's a bit weak. That would be a weak announcement. Uh... What he's describing and what he's appealing to is the language of shame that appears throughout the Old Testament. And it's always connected to the resolution of that with righteousness. And that's the reason Paul brings those two things together in the announcement of the beginnings of the gospel in Romans. Uh, The problem of shame linked to death is undone through the revealing of righteousness. We no longer have to hide in pride. Pride is the picture of trying to create our own identity, our own, you know, clothing, our own, uh, you know, uh, in, in some way trying to hide the reality of our shame. So, this is, uh, I encountered this in 20 years in Japan because shame is very much a present tense Reality. I don't know if those of you remember Ruth Benedict was actually with the occupation forces. She was an anthropologist who went to Japan and she noticed this stark difference in Japan that people, uh, that shame is something that is openly there, manipulated and talked about. I think that every culture is a, a shame culture, but there is the sense that in the West, We've so focused on individualism and upon guilt that we imagine that's just the way that the Bible is functioning. Well, first we can ask some basic questions. Is the, is the Bible, is, is it from the Orient or the Occident? Is it from the East or the West? Not that that's definitive or decisive, but clearly that what is pictured as a kind of Eastern thing in a lot of literature Uh, like Ruth Benedict well the Bible is from the East and what you see I think in the West in a kind of individualized notion and in atonement theories focused on guilt that has nothing to do with the Bible that's just a cultural misinterpretation of the Bible that's a misunderstanding and the idea even that you in some way are constituted as an individual apart from your family your socio-cultural condition that's a lie on the order of the lie of Babel. That's just not who we are. So, in the the Bible, we have about, the Baker Bible Dictionary says there's about 14 different words connected with shame. It's used more than 100 times. And it says it's an emotion of misery, reproach, embarrassment, that we feel unworthy, And I think that's the problem in its wholeness. Now certainly it's connected with the transgression of guilt. But our experience is not so much of guilt. But it's an experience that is bigger than guilt. Guilt I can just pay the penalty. If I speed on the highway and I can go pay the speeding fine. Sometimes the picture of the cross of Christ is pictured as a kind of payment for that kind of guilt. 
Jesus bore our shame. He bore more than our guilt. Um, So, what happens in shame? Everybody starts hiding, right? They hide from God. They hide from one another. And we could describe this as, as a kind of lost presence. There's nobody there for you. You can't love the other person in the midst of shame. You're incapacitated in terms of love. James McClendon says, face to face with one another, but ashamed, we sense a loss of presence. Uh, It's not simply God's presence, it's human presence that is lost. It's the kind of, uh, you know, the Babylites trying to create a presence, trying to storm the heavens. Uh, It's the picture of being unclothed and being put to shame. What is the resolution? This is, if we get the problem, we get the problem of unrighteousness. We get the problem of what it means to be put to shame. That it's the loss of the presence of God. And then we have the announcement with the birth of Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. Here is the restoration of humankind. Uh, here is the you know, fulfillment of David's picture. No one who's hoping you will ever be put to shame. Uh, that we can, as David says, guard my life and rescue me. Let me not be put to shame. I take refuge in you. It's precisely in Christ that that has come true. Um, that we've undone, we do away with the false pretense of pride. Pride cometh before shame, the writer of uh, the wisdom literature says. Uh, that there is an everlasting shame, the final shame in Psalm 78. That's undone. There's the picture of shame and idolatry. Idolatry is always connected. The prophet in some way puts them to shame that they might repent. Even Abraham, you know, the story of Abraham is really a story that in Israel is told as a prolonged shame story. That they're an old couple who are childless. And the way that they would propagate their name is in and through a child. Israel herself is pictured as a childless widow. And that's the most shameful of conditions. And in Isaiah, the picture is... You will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. For God himself will be your husband. Uh, Your shame will be resolved. In and through the the marriage actually is what it's pictured of Israel with God. Um, the, The culmination of the Old Testament literature about shame is precisely here that Paul's referencing. You know, the, the Messiah is the one in and whom through we will not be put to shame. But it's also in Isaiah that he pictures the, the suffering servant as uh, facing the worst sort of shame. Isaiah 50. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheek to those who pulled out my beard, I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be put to shame. Uh, 
Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I will I know I will not be put to shame. Uh, what has Christ done for us? He's done what the suffering servant is pictured as doing. He's bore shame, but he's reversed it. He's entered into the heart of shame, the most shameful death. And it's being pictured there in Isaiah that I can count my bones. They've divided my clothes. Uh, He's picturing the crucifixion scene. And it's precisely there that the ultimate end of shame is borne by Christ. And so Paul can say with the writer of Isaiah, I know that I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Because the righteousness of God has been revealed in Christ. Those who will be put to shame in Isaiah, they will wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Um, The suffering servant has entered into the very jaws of shame and death. And yet he has not been put to shame. And his persecutors will experience the final shame. Think there then. The problem of sin is lost presence. The resolution to the problem is the presence of God. The word is nigh thee. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. When we speak of looking upon Christ and receiving Christ and feeding upon Christ, it is not Christ removed from us in heaven. It's not Christ that is in the abyss of the deep. But Christ is the promise. He's given to us. He's near. He's available. Christ is nigh thee, for the word is nigh thee. Indeed, it is in thy mouth and in thy heart. There is no difficulty in understanding, believing, and owning it. The work thou hast to do lies within thee. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is among you. So the commandment is not shame-inducing, which I command you today. This is Deuteronomy and where this passage is from. It is not too difficult for you to reach it. Rather, and this this is the moment in which the law is given in Deuteronomy, that Paul is quoting, and he's changing this quote, the word is nigh thee, not in the law, but in Christ, not in the abyss, not in heaven, But here is the fulfillment of the law. Not beyond the sea that you would say, who will cross the sea for us to get us, for us to make us hear it, that we may observe it. This is Deuteronomy. But the word is very near you, in your mouth, in your heart. And so the fulfillment of the law, even as it's given, is pictured as fulfilled in the word which is Christ. As N.T. Wright puts it, Paul is using Deuteronomy to say, Ah, but in the enabling promise of covenant renewal, God himself holds out a new way of doing the law. A way which will be in your mouth and in your heart. A way which will come from God himself in the form of his word. And you will be enabled to do it. The conclusion of this is Paul's picture of the preaching of the gospel the preaching of the gospel brings God near you know if this is true that the word is near how do they hear they hear in and through the preaching of the word how will they hear unless someone preaches 
Their voice, Paul says, has gone out into all the earth and the words to the ends of the earth. That God is made near, here is the resolution to the problem. And of course, what he's picturing is that in and through the word of Christ, that we receive then the fulfillment promised in the Old Testament. I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. All day long I have held out my hands. In Joel, I will come about, it will come about after this, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. That's the image that Paul is picturing then as the fulfillment of the purposes of Israel. That in Israel we realize that Christ is the true temple. Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. It's in and through that Christ that the Holy Spirit is given. Let's sing our hymn.